Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Fight fans to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Sean Basto. Joined by Johnston Brown, this is our new series for BTR Boxing Podcast, Career Profiles. We're going to be going through the career profiles of some of the greatest fighters that ever lived and we'll be putting polls out every single week for you, the listeners, to vote on it on Twitter at BTR Boxing Pod. And we're going to be starting off with the greatest, Muhammad Ali. But first, before we get into this episode, please go and find us on social media. First of all, on Twitter at BTR Boxing Pod and on Facebook at BTR Boxing Podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you already have, thank you so much. If you've not already rated and reviewed us, please go and do it. If this is the first time you're listening to us, please go and leave us a rating and leave us a review. If you're not on Apple and you're on Android, any good podcasting app out there, Podbean, Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM, even Spotify and Eat Sleep Boxing Repeats YouTube channel. You can find us on there and subscribe to get all the latest episodes of all our different series that we run. So this is it then. This is the first in a new series of career profiles. We're going to be profiling the greatest, Mr. Muhammad Ali. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from Louisville, Kentucky, wearing black tie, Mr... Cassius Marcellus Clay. His classic poem, I Am the Greatest. This kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you're asleep for the night. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. 
So, Johnston, this is our new series, Career Profiles, and we're starting with the greatest, Muhammad Ali. And what a fighter to start with. What uh, an absolute enigma of a man to start with when it comes to career profiles. Oh, he was the greatest. He was charismatic. He was outspoken. He was exceptionally gifted. And as you said once, uh, he was handsome. It was fast, and he couldn't possibly be beat. Be. And uh, to be honest, you, you couldn't figure anyone better than Mohamed Ali to do this, this career profile with. Um, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Great, great pick from both of us. So we haven't put it out of the poll, but, you know, we'll do that for the next load. But, uh, yeah, great. Eagerly anticipated to get this one in. And, uh, yeah, what, what a fantastic person and, and a great fighter. Indeed. And we will go into him as a man, as a fighter very shortly. So the format of this career profiles and for you, the listeners, is really we decided we want to sit down and go through the careers of fighters like Harley, many other fighters out there. And as Johnson just touched on there, we're going to be doing polls every week like we do with Legendary Nights. We'll put a poll out for fantastic fighters, legendary fighters, and you will pick the fighter you want us to do the career profile on. And the way we're going to do these career profiles is we're going to obviously do a little bit of background in the early years we're going to look at where they came from what it was like for them growing up and then their boxing careers going into what made them into their sort of statuses that we know them as today so we're going to talk about early careers any amateur achievements significant fights now obviously we've got the legendary night series if you've not already heard it go and check it out but we've got the legendary night series which is covered off some of the fights that you may hear in things like Muhammad Ali's career profile or say a Sugar Ray Leonard profile we've covered fights off of these guys before so if you want more detailed analysis of particular fights of their careers go and check out the Legendary Night series for that but this is going to be more of a run through of some of the significant events that happened inside and outside the ring of these fighters careers and as we said we're starting with the greatest this, who else could we have started with really for this there's no one else out there that you could say would justify doing a career profile on this is the man that everybody would love to sit at a dinner table with a conversation with any sort of interaction with this is the man you would have wanted to be around and i'm really pleased to be doing this career profile on muhammad ali aka cassius clay we'll go into the background of Muhammad Ali first of all I think that's where we want to start with Johnson we want to start of where where it all began for him and I mentioned Cassius Clay there for for anybody that's been living under the rock for for the lifetime Cassius Clay was obviously <laughs> the original name of Muhammad Ali so he was born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr on January the 17th 1942 in Louisville Kentucky and he was siblinged with one sister four brothers and he also had a father named Cassius Marcellus Clay Sr as well and you heard a lot about his career and some of the stuff he talked about in his career the fact that he came from descendants of slaves and you know he was very much against the name because he believed it was a slave name and that's why he eventually ended up changing his name to Muhammad Ali it was actually true doing a little bit of digging and a bit of research on on you know Muhammad Ali's career and stuff that I did know and stuff that I didn't know I was very surprised to actually see he, he did actually have descendants from the slave trade era and I can understand why when we get into his career and we talk about people like Ernie Terrell calling him Cassius Clay to his face and the whole debacle there why he was so you know why he got his back up so much about it all now I can understand truly why he got his back up so much about it all because of the background of it all and you know the whole disgusting slave trade that went on hundreds of years ago but where it began for him then Johnston you know we've heard many many stories about his 
upbringing, his background. What are the what are the stories that you originally heard about Muhammad Ali? Well, one that the, the, what got him into boxing was one that always struck me. Um, at the age of twelve years old, uh, he actually got his uh, brand new bike stolen from him. Um, so he, he actually reported it to the nearest policeman at the time. And he was, uh, you know, Ali at twelve years old, pretty much as as he was. It, it sort of as we know how he is, uh, how he was. Uh, so he was sort of giving it, sort of giving threat to the police and what he's going to do to the thief when he catches him. And um, ironically, the policeman actually he he uh, run an amateur boxing program. Um, so he suggested might be a good idea for Cassius to to come and learn some boxing um, before sort of uh, you know uh, get himself. If he if he wants to beat up the thief, then let's get him prepared to fight to to fight the thief. If he ever sort of locked arms with him, um, so you know sooner or later he, he did go to the gym uh, regularly. Uh, and within sort of six weeks, he had his first uh, amateur fight at the age of twelve years old, uh, and he done just enough to win. Uh, but you know, as as Cassius Clay or Mohammed, you know Cassius Clay, he was then he uh, he was very. Uh, outspoken and, and he was telling everyone he's going to be the greatest in the world so, <laughs> so Clay being Clay he, he sees something in himself early doors uh, uh, and he just he, di- he displayed a, rebar- a remarkable self-discipline uh, in his training uh, running he was doing his, a lot of running in the mornings uh, he's going to the gym and sparring after school so he showed he had something um, at the age of 12 and obviously that carried on to the point of when he was 18 and then um, he got into the amateur scene um, and then obviously you know, fought in six prestigious gold, golden gloves, ti- uh, golden gloves titles at state level and national level before moving on to the Olympics. The Olympics was where he became a breakout star as a boxer. I think we knew him as an outspoken fighter. You know, we we we, we always known him as that because we didn't grow up in that area. But you know, when you look at all the videos, all the documentaries, everything that is out there, and there's plenty of it, you can go there and look at the you know to get an insight into the man's mind. And like you say, from the age of 12 he always had this charismatic side of him where you're kind of looking back on some of the historical stuff interview wise of his you always kind of knew even in the early interviews that he was going to go on to do something special in the sport and his first breakout moment obviously came in the 1960 summer olympics in rome when he won a light heavyweight gold medal in a few moments the judges votes will be tallied and the winner will receive amateur boxing's highest award the olympic gold medal the decision goes to Cassius Clay of the United States. Pietrakowski graciously congratulates him. And then Ziggy's quartermen also acknowledge Clay's masterful boxing exhibition. Just moments later in the award ceremony, the fighters take their places on the victory stand. Cassius Clay has presented the coveted gold medal for his tremendous victory in the light heavyweight division of the Olympic Boxing Championships. A magnificent conclusion to the 1960 Rome Olympics. And, you know, that was it. That was where his career started from, really, for me. That was where he really started to pick up because, you know, the great interviews around of, of him, you know, winning the gold medal and talking about what he wanted to do going forward. And his amateur record was pretty outstanding, to be honest with you, at this, at this period of time. He finished his amateur career with 100 wins and only five losses. Now, that, for me, is, is quite incredible quite outstanding i mean people refer to this day and age and the amateur scene and some of the fighters out there that have been incredible amateurs but we're talking 50 60 70 years ago here you know this is a very long time ago boxing was different rules and regulations were different and for him to have gone in and had 105 fights winning 100 and only losing five what a great amateur career topping it off with that gold medal in the olympics 
Yeah, yeah, and, and he, he he literally breathed through the Olympics in at that light heavyweight division. He 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 took that gold medal with with almost ease. And it, I mean, there was a funny story as well that um, apparently he was absolutely petrified of flying. Um, so so when they eventually talked him into board the plane, apparently he insisted that he wanted to wear a parachute during the flight <laughs> just in case it crashed. So you can imagine Ali wearing a parachute all the way. Uh, when he actually did arrive in Rome as well, he tied it with a, a great line. He said, uh, I don't worry about the fight. I just worry about the flights. <laughs> so he, he, he had that great tongue from early age. Um, and he, he was just, he, he just, I think, you know, many people considered him at the time to be a bit of a cocky little git, but and not many believed it, you know, in what he was saying. I don't think many felt that he had the ability to, to, to do the things that he suggested, but boy, were they wrong. And, and he did just carry on that, 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 that characteristic, that, that, that unbelievable side to him that, no one can compare with. He just had this aura about him that, that no other fighters have ever had. Um, and, and yeah, and, and it was literally from that moment winning that gold medal and, and, and he was on, on, on the verge of turning pro. Well, there was a story about the gold medal that was disputed. And I'll tell you the story and the listeners the story about what apparently was reported at the time. So when he returned from the Rome Olympics in 1960, a couple of weeks afterwards, apparently he threw his gold medal into the Ohio river after he and a friend were refused service at a white only restaurant and fought with a white gang now this was the story that was disputed this was being said as it never happened it was bullshit basically but the real story according to thomas hauser in his biography of ali stated that ali was refused service at the diner but he actually lost his medal a year after he won it ali did go on to receive a replacement medal uh, at a basketball intermission during the 1996 olympics in atlanta which is something we'll we'll touch on a little bit later on down the line uh, about his involvement in that particular olympics so Again, you know, there's so many different stories that, you know, you'd heard about about him. And this was one that I didn't actually know. I didn't know that, you know, there was rumours of him throwing his own gold medal into the lake. I can't see him have done that, to be honest with you. I think that was, again, it was just a made-up story to get to get attention and to get press, to be honest. It's more than likely, you know, the truth is that he lost it for whatever reason, however it happened. And, you know, he fortunately did go on to get a replacement of it. But it was just a little a bit of an interesting story. I mean, obviously... Obviously, he was very much for uh, the Black Power movement, and, and obviously that particular era, without being too political about it, was was a very difficult era for people of colour because obviously, you know, they were told they can't sit in a bus, they were told they couldn't do this, they were told they couldn't do that. The police, you know, always pulled them over. The police, even today, it still happens. But again, let's not go too political into it. But it's the truth, and that that's what was happening back then, which still happens now, and that's something that we'll talk about later on down the line as he battles through it outside of the ring in his career so as you say he makes his professional debut on october the 29th 1960 winning a six-round decision over tony hunsaker and from then until the end of 1963 he amassed a record of 19 and 0 with 15 wins by knockout he defeated boxers which included tony esperetta jim robinson donny fleeman alonzo johnson george logan willie besmanoff lamar clark doug jones and our very own good old henry cooper yes Henry Cooper, goodness, yeah, uh, he he, uh, he he came over um, with with that again. He, he was pretty cocky. I mean, he was predicting women for them fights. He predicted uh, several of them fights. Um, I, I believe before he fought um, 
Charlie Powell, he had predicted seven of the eight fights that he had won. So he was getting the rounds right, um, which was all part of, of the enigma of uh, of Muhammad Ali or Cassius Claudio was at the time. But um, yeah, he, he said he'd get rid of him in five. Um, he said that he actually came into the into the ring as well wearing a crown. Um, and he said like afterwards, he said, you have a queen of England, but you don't have a king. So that was why he came in wearing the crown um, and you know it, it, he, he I think he came with a little bit of, it was a bit cocky because Angelo Dundee recently I, I, I did hear that he said you know you've got to be careful of Henry Cooper especially that, that left hook he's, he's a dangerous left hook and he was like nah come on I, I, can, I can dance around him all day And then, well Henry Cooper's nothing but a tramp he's a bum I'm the world's greatest he must fall in five rounds but if you talk about me I'll cut his three your prediction about Doug Jones didn't go quite right though well, Doug Jones was a little tougher than I thought he was, but uh, I'll never fight another fella as tough as Doug Jones. Not even that big, ugly bear, Sonny Lester. Is he your next fight? Well, after I annihilate this Henry Coop, I want that bear. And what's going to happen to him? I want him bad. What's going to happen to him? He might be great, but he'll fall in eight. And what after that? President of the United States? Well, no, I'll never shoot for nothing like that, but I'm, I'm the prettiest fight in the ring today. That's my label. Obviously, um, we all know that that Emery Zammer, it landed in the fourth round. Um, and thanks, well, there's a few, thankfully, for our lady landed on the ropes. And it was right at the end of the round. Because who knows if Henry Cooper had, have, had have won that fight and finished off Cassius Clay at the time. Because, you know, that, that fight was, everybody was talking about Sonny Liston. So that could have been Emery Cooper instead of Muhammad Ali. Literally just before the Sonny Liston fight. So, But as we know, he eventually um, did recover Um it was a little bit longer. I mean, people did mention, obviously, the smelling salts they were around at the time that you, you were allowed to use them. Um, and he did actually manage an extra six seconds at the break. I think people mentioned 20 or 30 seconds, which is, is, is not true. It was just yeah, only the six, the six seconds. Also, there was a, a slight slit on the glove. Um, obviously, we all know Henry Cooper was susceptible to cut. Um, Andrew Dundee didn't say that he had cut it open. He said there was a slit there and he may have just made it a little bit wider. Um, so, as you know, when Ali threw them jabs and then right hands, he would glance them shots. So, you know, opening that cut nicely on Henry Cooper's eye, which eventually stopped uh, that the referee stopped the fight. And if, if anyone has never seen this fight, watch the first fight. Uh, um, it is at Wembley Stadium um, and Emery Cooper's face is an absolute picture it's, it's, it's brutal um, and the referee was absolutely right to stop it but unlucky for Emery because he's, he's one of my idols he lived in Bellingham which weren't too far from me I literally ran my neck of the woods he's a bit of an idol for me um, so I was obviously I, I'm not around at the time but unfortunately he couldn't have got the, got the job done and beat uh, Cassius Clay but you know, Cassius K, what a great guy he was. So, at um, the end of the day, they become great friends in the long run. But, um, yeah, it, interesting. If, if he could have won that fight, who knows? He could have gone on to fault listing. That would have been a nice fight. Eh? But what was interesting about looking back on his career in more detail than, than the major marquee fights that everybody knows when they hear, like, the Frella and Manila, you know, we've got other information that I was I was very surprised at. And, actually, it doesn't really come across in most of the documentaries. The fact that Archie Moore former professional heavyweight himself was actually the original trainer before Angelo Dundee of Muhammad Ali and that's something actually even I never knew and I mean don't get me wrong I've got a, a breath of knowledge when it comes to boxing history but this was something I didn't originally know until looking in further down the line so he actually ended up going on to beat Archie Moore now the reason he actually left Moore camp was actually because Archie Moore had asked him to do chores such as washing the dishes and sweeping so he basically said nope I ain't doing this 
I ain't doing no sweeping, I ain't doing no cleaning, and decided to ditch the Archie Moore side and decided to go with Angelo Dundee to be his trainer. And they'd already met before previously Dundee uh, and Ali. They actually met in February 1957 during Clay's amateur career at the time. So it was around this time that Muhammad Ali... Cassius Clay had sought his long-time Sugar Ray Robinson to be his manager but that didn't happen that was you know crazy to think like some of these names that we're throwing out here like Angelo Dundee you know he'd already he'd already met him in the amateurs he ends up going on to become his trainer and the rest is history as we'll talk about and then he actually tried to get Sugar Ray Robinson to be his manager and that is something again I didn't know I didn't have no clue of that and I was very surprised to read about that when I was doing the research for the episode and you know, Sugar Ray Robinson arguably is classed as one of the greatest, if not the greatest. When you do the pound for pounds, some people actually put Ray Robinson above Muhammad Ali in these top 10 pound for pounds of all time. So, you know, that just says it all. You know, mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali looked up to Sugar Ray Robinson and wanted him to be his manager, and he had Angelo Dundee as his trainer. Wow, I never knew that. I never knew. I, I, one thing I do recall is he did mention obviously Sugar Ray Robinson was his idol when he bumped into him and he wasn't too polite. He, he sort of fogged him off when he was a kid, so he didn't quite like that. And he always said that you know with him when he's a, when he's famous and people want to speak to him, he'd always give people his time. So that's interesting. That uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm and I'm with you. I mean, I, for me, I would always I will put Sugar Ray Robinson ahead of Muhammad Ali when it comes to pan for pan. Um, if you're talking about in terms of not just fighting, and we're talking in terms of with everything and the whole what what the persona and you know what a guy brings in and outside the ring then obviously Ali is the greatest without a shadow of a doubt but for me Sugar Ray Robinson is the best but um, yeah that's interesting I've never knew that never knew that so after he beats Henry Cooper which was in 1963 he gets his shot at a world title now this was where things started to become very interesting for his career at this point he'd obviously got himself into a position he was very brash he was very cocky this is where we start to get to see some of the great lines come out of Muhammad Ali so he was the number one contender for the WBC WBA heavyweight titles the champion at the time Sonny Liston the very feared Sonny Liston I might add this was a guy who was a monster this was a guy who he was knocking everybody out for fun. Sonny Liston, in the lead-up to the first fight with him, you know, he'd been knocking people out for the fun of it. Absolutely knocking people out for the fun of it. But there's always the story of, of Sonny Liston's sort of tarnished career, of, you know, his affiliation with the mobsters back in that particular era and, you know, the theor- theories of how he actually died. There's there's a lot of stuff we could even talk about with Sonny Liston, but for this particular episode, focusing on Muhammad Ali, the Sonny Liston fight was... was huge for him because he was the young pup he was the guy that was coming through with all the confidence in the world uh he was ready for it he was absolutely ready for this at this time and you look back on the videos and the interviews this was just it was it was like it was always meant to be when you know people believe things happen for a reason or they believe in fate and i think this was the part of fate and things that were supposed to happen for a reason it was always gonna it was always gonna be muhammad ali winning against sonny liston for me you know when i look back on everything i've ever read or ever looked at the way he come into that he was the underdog he was a seven to one underdog but he didn't give a shit about that he was taunting liston during the pre-fight build-up he's calling him the big ugly bear and Liston even smells like a bear and he was saying to him after I beat him I'm going to donate him to the zoo (laughs) I'm young I'm handsome I'm fat 
I'm pretty and can't possibly be beat. You might be young and handsome, but you won't be after I finish with you. If you like to lose your money, be a fool and bet on Sonny. I'm pretty sure people's not a fool to bet on you. They have to be a fool and bet on me. You're 40 years old if a day, and you don't belong in the ring with Cassius Clay. No, I shouldn't because it'd be a disgrace to see the people, let the people see me kill you like I am. The odds should be three and a half to one that you won't show up for the fight. The odds should be ten to nothing that you don't last for the first round. He, he was really, uh, he was really sort of up, up tight. For, the, for that weigh-in um, in the morning before the fight. Um, he was going berserk, wasn't he? I'm ready to rumble now, he's saying. And, uh, you know, and, and even when uh, he, he got examined by the doctor, the doctor actually said that, uh, in his opinion, the fighter was scared to death. He said, Muhammad Ali's actually, he's petrified. That's why he's, his heart's beating so fast. But it was all, it was all part of, you know, the game that, that Cassius Clay at the time, I mean, we've got to call him Clay, I suppose, at the moment. Um, we haven't changed his name yet, but it was all part of the plan. Um, and when uh, sort of in and around his team, his cornerman did ask him, like, what are you playing at? Why are you acting like a nutcase? And he sort of said, because Liston thinks it, because Liston thinks I'm, I'm a nut, he's scared, of, he's scared of no man, but he's scared of a nut. So in his head, he's thinking, I'm going to get a list in his head. And therefore, he's, if he's a bit scared of me, then, you know, hopefully, you know, playing them mind games, that's, that's what he did. Um, and, you know, you've got to remember, Liston, was, he was feared, wasn't he? Uh, he was an absolute monster in the ring. He, he, he literally destroyed Floyd Patterson in those two fights. Um, uh, you know, and, and nobody, nobody gave Clay a chance. It was, it, was, it was a big upset. Everybody was against him. No one fought even the last, what, two rounds with him. Um, I mean, Liston had... He had fought three fights. Um, it, so so uh, Lister had fought just three fights in a total of six minutes and 14 seconds in three years, whereas Clay had fought 14 times, including three 10-rounders. So you know, when you look at that, you've got to think, actually, you know, what, Lister's not really been active, although he's been blasting people out. So in people's heads, they're thinking he's just going to get rid of him in no time. But in actual fact, you look at that, and as you say, like when you look through it now, obviously we all know how, how great he became, but how was he such a such an underdog? And I, and I think for me, it was because of the, the way he was and the way he carried himself. You know, at, at that time in, in the 60s, you know, that wasn't how they expected acts. Um, and you think Floyd Patterson, they loved Floyd Patterson because he was respectful. That's, that's basically how they see it. He had to be nice and respectful to his opponents and, and to the press. And, um, you know, Ali wasn't. So for them, they didn't like him and, and they hated him for that. They hated him being so boastful. But, that, you know, that, that, was what, that was what makes him so great is that he, he took himself out of this stereotype of what you're supposed to be. And he, and he created this, this guy. It was a persona because he was a lovely guy. In actual fact, it's just in front of the camera and he would act up like this but you know even even talks about gorgeous george gorgeous george was a guy he watched for years in wrestling and people hated him and had paid to go and watch gorgeous george and he never quite understood if people hate someone why are they paying and they're like well they want to see him get beat so he thought well if i'm act like gorgeous george and everyone's going to want to watch come and pay tickets to go and watch me get beat it's good business they thought i'm going to do that <laughs> and that's what he did so he done it brilliantly for sunny liston and and well you know i mean i don't you could touch on the fight show but it, it was a great fight as well and he was just outstanding there was things that happened in the fight as well which again was a little bit sus um 
which I don't know if you if you, if you want to talk about it, all, but it was there was a couple of incidents in there with the gloves, and yeah, it was it was a it was an interesting first fight. It was it was significant in his career because it was the first time he'd become heavyweight champion in the world. So he did win this fight. Obviously, that's what history tells us. But as you were talking about and alluding to some of the stories in there, yeah, there was one major story that that came out of this one. The, well, there's two. The first one was the fact that he cut Liston, which had never been done before. Liston never suffered a cut in his career. So the fact that he got through and cut Liston was was huge. You know, this was a guy who was essentially invincible like a monster and all the rest of it. And he cut him. And this is where things started to change in the fight. They, the corner of Liston, used some sort of ointment that was supposed to be used for his cut on his eye. And... Rumour has it, and I say that very strongly, rumour, rumour has it that they actually, you know, this, this, this ointment was used and smeared a little bit on the gloves of Liston. So when Liston was throwing shots at Cassius Clay, he was getting, when he was connecting, they were getting through. And at the end of the fourth round, Cassius Clay is coming back to his corner complaining that his eyes are burning. They're really, really burning. He's actually slightly blinded him as a result and then what happened was Liston decides to come out and try to knock Clay out and he's really going for it he's really going for it in this one because they obviously know that there's something up with Clay's eyes now it begs the question whether all the shady mob stuff had something to do with it we'll never ever know the real story behind it all but it does look and sound very very suspect Cassius Clay was able to survive that fifth round and eventually got into the sixth, dominated Liston absolutely dominated him in the sixth round to the point where he didn't want to come out for the seventh and that was him winning his first world title by TKO and this is where the legacy really really begins for me then is, is this first listing fight is the win and the confidence going into it people thinking he ain't got a chance against him and for him to come out on top the way he did with that adversity in the fight as well with obviously the slight blindness of the eyes because of this ointment where again we don't know if it was true I'm just putting it out there it's a lot of theories going around that it was that was purposely put on there to blind the opponents of Liston because you know Cassius Clay wasn't the first opponent to have complained that this had happened to them as well so that made you suspect things a little bit more but yeah he, come, he goes on to become the heavyweight champion of the world for the very first time I'm the greatest fan that ever lived I don't have a mark on my face yeah. and I upset Sonny Liston and I just turned 22 years old I must be the greatest right. now, I told the world I talk to God every day if God's with me came over out of here against me Sonny I shook up the world Wait a minute, wait a minute, Cassius. Yes. Let me ask you this now. You told me when you visited in Los Angeles you could do it in eight. Well, you thought Sonny and figured Sonny was great. How I come you did it in six or seven? You did it in seven. I had him going in eighth. I was getting ready to take him in the eighth, as you can see. But the man stopped it just to keep from making me look so great. Right. I see. Now, give us that poetry on number seven. He wanted to go to heaven. So I took him in seven. You took him in seven. I am the king of the world. Hold it, hold it, hold I'm it. I'm pretty. Hold it, you're not that pretty. I'm a bad man. Wait, wait. I shook up the world. I shook up the world. Oh, I shook up the world. Yeah, yeah, and he, and he dethroned Sonny Liston. He was an absolute beast, and anyone, no one could believe it. And the strange thing was that Sonny Liston wasn't very liked. He was, you know, as you say, he had, he had links with the mobs, with the mob, and, uh, you know, even when he fought Patterson, those two fights, especially the first one, they they hated Liston. They didn't like him. So this is actually the first time when Liston came out in to, to fight Clay in the first fight. They, you know, he actually, he actually came out to to cheers for once in his career. It's, it's quite weird for him. It must have been unusual for him. 
But, um, yeah, unbelievable. Great performance from Clay. And, and as you say, he, he comes from the adversity with the ointment and whether, you know, we'll never know, will we, whether it, whether it was deliberate or not. Um, and then obviously went on into the second one, which, again, was full of controversy because obviously we get that famous the phantom punch and and whether um, did did he did he take a dive i don't know did he um I, i've watched the fight i've seen the punch several times myself uh, it's difficult I, yeah. many people say that with that shot i mean i've never been caught with it so i can't necessarily say whether it would put me down but that that shot just sort of near the temple uh, sort of behind the ear it apparently can put you down like that he did look like he went down quite easily though didn't it yeah, he did. He really did. It was for me. It was one of them where you look at it time and time and time again. Whatever angle you look at it, and however you want to theorise over it, it does look very much like he took a dive in this fight. And that's my honest opinion of it. I think he did. I think he took a dive, and we we kind of know even all these years down the line that there was all this shady mob stuff going on, and there's so many different stories about how literally the mob had him tied up money wise, all the way up until his death. You know, this 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 made me think that he. he was told to throw the fight basically in a certain round and obviously Ali went to catch him with a with a with a shot and it I think it looked like it really just skimmed his whiskers and I'm not being funny right but when he's on the floor and Ali sh- stood over him shouting him why why would he do that why would why would he shout at him telling him to get up if he knew you know he'd hit him cleanly if he felt like he'd hit him cleanly enough to knock him down he wouldn't he would have gone straight to the neutral corner he didn't that's the thing he didn't you watch it and he shouts over him and then there's the iconic picture as well that we see of him stood over Liston shouting at him so to me I always feel like this was a little bit of a thrown fight from from Liston's perspective and probably because he had his hands tied with the whole mob situation but for for obviously Cassie's claim Muhammad Ali this was a massive moment he, he absolutely dethrones Son- Sonny Liston, two two fights in a row, beats Sonny Liston, and then this is where we go. He starts to go on this fantastic run, and we start to get some of these significant fights in his career before we get to the point where we talk about the exile and the whole situation that happened outside of the ring. So his next fight uh, was significant because it was Floyd Patterson, former professional, former world champion. He was the youngest ever world champion, uh, twenty one years of age before. Mr. Mike Tyson came along uh, and smashed that record years later. Uh, and just to, actually, just to, to touch back on the second fight between Clay and Liston, the referee, did you notice who it was? Yes, Jersey Joe Walcott. Yeah, Jersey Joe Walcott was the referee for Clay yeah. Liston, too. That was uh, crazy. Absolutely crazy for that. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that makes me think why did Jersey Joe officiate this fight as well? Which that, that makes me think as well, this is not. Quite, so it's not quite right, is it? Because I don't think he had officiated many fights. I mean, I might be wrong here. Had he? I don't, I don't think he had. No, I don't know how many fights he'd officiated, and I don't think I'd be able to find that information. I think that'd be difficult to find the information. Yeah. I don't know if you'd be able to find the actual information. You might be able to find some stuff on Boxrec for that, but no, I, I don't know. But it's at this point, actually, that we've not mentioned that... The, the change of his name actually happened between the first and second fight with Liston. He actually, first of all, changed his name from Clay to Cassius X and then decided to change it to Muhammad Ali. That is when he converted to Islam and affiliated himself with the Nation of Islam at this point. And this is where he'd become Muhammad Ali now and this is again the legacy from here on in he's just again on, on you know something to behold really so he beats Sonny Liston twice 
gets to Floyd Patterson, beats Floyd Patterson. You know, this is uh, it's quite quite a sad story with Patterson because he fought Patterson twice. He fought Patterson uh, after he'd beat Sonny Liston and he fought him in 1965, but he did actually go on to fight him again in 1972 but the second fight he actually put that fight together Muhammad Ali to help out Floyd Patterson because Floyd Patterson was actually really really uh, struggling at the time yeah yeah he was yeah and Floyd was a another he was, he's a great fight I mean he, for his his era you know sort of the late 50s he, he was uh, he was the man wasn't he he was the heavyweight champion and as you say yeah he did he came under you know he, he was a bit he come from, from some difficult times but again that's Muhammad Ali you know he, he puts his persona out there that you know he, he's this this you know he, he sort of talks down to people and he says some inappropriate stuff but in actual fact in the background he's always doing things to try and help others and that was him all over that doesn't surprise me that he would jump on a fight just to help Patterson. I think even in that 72 fight, I don't want to jump too far here, but I think he actually, he sort of even said he prolonged the fight a little bit to you know, make it as entertaining as he could, which is just typical of him. But um, I suppose, yeah, I mean, just, just one other thing we, we did touch on as well, which which I just literally slipped my mind was... Um, before, before, as you say, he did change his name. He was travelling around sort of uh, Egypt, Ghana, Nigeria, and obviously Malcolm X has been to a few of his fights as well. Um, but there was real fears as well for Ali's life when he had changed his name. So you know, there was massive fears he was going to be assassinated before, and even during that Liston's fight, the second fight. So yeah, well, I sort of went over that. We jumped on a bit too quickly, but yeah, moving back to Patterson. I mean, again, you know, we talk about the great quotes uh, from Muhammad Ali. Um, and he did come up with with a beauty um, for, for the Patterson fight, which was uh, if Floyd dreamed he could beat me, he would apologise. <laughs> <laughs> typical, typical Ali, that isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. So we can move on then, uh, and we get another heavyweight defence of his title with a very, very tough George Chavalo, and then he fights Henry Cooper for a second time, beats Henry Cooper more emphatically in the second time around. But then he comes back again to the UK after the Cooper fight, fights at Earl's Court, beats Brian London, stops him, uh, and then this is sort of leading into the Ernie Terrell fight, which is something I wanted to focus on. Not so much the fight, but something that we've touched on in one of our previous episodes of, of obviously Muhammad Ali uh, talking about the incident where obviously they're on telly and they're talking. <laughs> I, I, I know we've covered it, we've covered it off before in the best box, boxing brawls <laughs> episode, but I can't help but not say anything about it again because it was significant, really, because of the fact that he was calling him Cassius Clay on live television. Uh, Muhammad Ali had changed his name. He didn't want to dis- be disrespected in that way, and then obviously goes into the ring and absolutely takes the piss out of, of Ernie Terrell, batters him from pillar to post while screaming "What's my name?" all the way through the fight so you know it was a significant <laughs> fight because it was him sort of stamping his authority about the fact he changed his name and that some people still regarded him as Cassius Clay even a lot of TV companies still regarded him as Cassius Clay and magazines as well were still calling him Cassius Clay at this point it's like they refused to accept his his conversion to Islam they refused to accept the fact that he took an Islamic name as opposed to taking his original name which he said was a slave name going back to his descendants talking about the slave trade uh, 200, 300 years ago so obviously it was significant in his career and then moving on he goes in and fights one more time before we get to the oh, the whole exile situation against Zora Foley, stops Zora Foley and then this is where we get the significant event which 
I felt like this was a very, very pivotal moment in the career of Muhammad Ali, not just in his career, but in his life. This was, for me, you know, something that I'd have to stand up and applaud the guy for, you know, something that so many people in this day and age have, you know, their own thoughts about how government should deal with certain situations that happen in the world. And in March 1966, Ali refused to be inducted into the armed forces. And as a result, he was systematically denied a boxing license in every state stripped of his passport uh he didn't fight then for three years as a result of this yeah yeah it was it was crazy i mean it, i mean it was in 1966 as well when he uh he came up with with that quote um because obviously that you know they were saying he was eligible for the military the military draft um and he should prepare himself for service in Vietnam. And in 1960s, I think it was just even just before or just after the end of the fight. Um, and he, that was when he said, man, I ain't got no quarrel with him, Viet Cong. <laughs> Terrible American accent I've got there. But, um, yeah, so it, it, that didn't go down too well either. Um, and then obviously, and one other thing as well, I'm sure it was like 1964. I mean, Ali actually went through um, a military exam, which is something that they all... If I'm right, I think they, it was like a mandatory thing they had to do. But he was actually told that he couldn't, he wouldn't be able to join the forces because you know he wasn't, he didn't, he, he didn't pass the exam. So you know, two years before that, you know, you got these guys that that weren't eligible because they weren't clever enough. So then the next point where they're like, right, well, you know, you are clever enough, you can go now. So you know, these it just it didn't go down great. At, Obviously, with what he was saying, but you know, it was just—it was just a t- the whole thing was he, he could he see through it almost. I mean, we can say that now because you know it, it, it was a, a dreadful war and, and it was literally no point. I and mean, loads of young men died for for a, a, a crazy cause. It was just it just didn't make no sense. But so you could you know we look at it now in hindsight and we you know we can see that what Ali he believed in and and he stood by it. And you got to give him the utmost respect for it. Um, obviously. You know, as you say, at 25 years old, he's stripped of his license, um, and you know, three years out of the ring, it just—it's just—it's it's hard to believe it. Beggars belief, really, um, that, that 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 he 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 was out of the ring for as long as he was at the age of 25 years old. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, even. Um, we talk about Zara Foley as well. So that was the last fight. I mean, just just jumping off the subject here, but Foley actually he died a mysterious uh, swimming pool incident at just age forty one. So it, it weren't just listing that that guys of you know uh, all these mysterious deaths. This is just this is a weird time when you, you do get these crazy these crazy stories that come out. Um, but yeah, obviously it was good looking like he was going to go down, you know, go prison. But obviously he, he didn't do his time. Um, he got a $10,000 fine as well and he ended up becoming um, Jimmy Ellis's sparring partner just to keep him active because uh, obviously Jimmy Ellis was Angelo Dundee so, and, and he kept himself busy going off to universities doing talks um, but yeah really really sad because you just don't know what, what could have happened in those three years But let's just take a little pause for one moment to give a shout out to the sponsors for BTR Boxing Podcast It's Bear Attack Boxing providing high quality boxing gloves boxing equipment to your suitable needs you can find them at www.bearattackboxing.co.uk and all over social media you've got the fight pro one gloves the pluto gloves the new bear attack boxing t-shirt range the inner gloves the hand wraps some great boxing products on there so go and check them out and also we've got a little present for you because you're a loyal listener to btr boxing podcast we've got an exclusive discount code for you now it's a 10 percent discount and all you've got to do 
is when you're at the checkout and you've got them boxing gloves and that t-shirt in there that you want to buy, go onto the promo code and enter BTR10 for 10% off. And 10% is not something to be scoffed at in this day and age. It can definitely get you a few quid off them high quality products that Bear Attack Boxing are selling. So, as a loyal listener to BTR Boxing Podcast, when you buy or purchase something through Bear Attack Boxing's website, in the promo code, enter BTR10 and you will get an exclusive 10% discount off your basket. So please go and take advantage of it. Follow them on social media, Bear Attack Boxing, and it's bearattackboxing.co.uk. Yeah, and one particular thing that he did during that hiatus from the ring due to him being denied a boxing licence was the super fight, Rocky Marciano and Muhammad mm. Ali. So, what, what the story is behind this one is, while he was banned from sanctioned bouts, now there was a $1 million lawsuit against a radio producer, Murray Warona, so he decided to settle this lawsuit by accepting a $10,000 fee to appear in a privately staged fantasy fight against the retired champion, Rocky Marciano. So in 1969, the boxers were filmed sparring for about 75 one-minute rounds and they acted out several different ways this was going to end and and the whole thing was it was going to be a computer-generated result at the end of it by all these different filmings that they'd done all these different scenarios of how this could possibly go there and and obviously Rocky Marciano retired an undefeated heavyweight champion of the world at 49 and 0 you know his record was was I still believe his record's the original record I mean Floyd Mayweather in this day and age is 50 and 0 but I don't think you know it's justified 50 and 0 and that's reasons we'll talk about somewhere else down the line but 49 and 0 undefeated heavyweight champion of the world Muhammad Ali heavyweight champion of the world yes he was stripped of everything at this point but he was still regarded as the best on the planet and they went and did this video which was a huge deal back then because when it eventually went on to be released in 1970 it was shown in movie theaters so people were going to the movie movies to watch this particular thing a computer simulated fight between these two who would just basically spar a load of rounds together so there was two versions there was a usa version where ali actually lost in a simulated 13th round knockout but there was also a european version which marciano lost due to cuts which was also simulated so it was it's quite funny because Ali suggested that it was quite prejudiced uh, when determining the defeat in the US version of it it was reported to jokingly say the computer was made in Alabama so you know he was uh, he was always witty he was always great at bringing out these uh, these fantastic <laughs> quotes but the super fight you know I have I have actually watched it the super fight I have actually sat down and watched the super fight I've got to be honest it's it's not great <laughs> I'm not gonna lie because it's 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 made in an era where technology was totally different than what we're all spoilt with today but just the respect man the respect these two guys had doing all these rounds together for the for this simulated fantasy fight and obviously Marciano would eventually go on to pass away in a plane crash in I think it was 1969 I'm pretty sure it was the same year actually that they, they filmed it because I remember that he, he wasn't alive when the super fight was actually released so which was 1970 he died in a plane crash so he never ended up getting to see it unfortunately but obviously 
people who were fans of Marciano from the generation just past. You know, they all wanted to see it. They all wanted to see old old guard against new guard, and it was a big thing. It was a really big thing about them. Yeah, it was, uh, and, and I've watched it, and, and it, it is it is pretty bad. I mean, it, it depends what your uh, standard is. If you know, if you go into it and you watch it, if you don't watch it, and yes, you, you know, you think it's not going to be great, you're actually quite pleasantly surprised. Um, I actually really think it's worse than it was. So, you know, if anyone wants to watch it, you know, I'd recommend that you know you could watch it, and um, it, it's quite good fun. You know, it's all tongue in cheek at the end of the day. You know, it would have been great to have actually seen Ali, uh, you know, uh, against uh, Rocky, but. Um, yeah, it wasn't to be obviously it was a bit of different areas but yeah it, you know it's a bit of fun when it? it kept him busy and that and that it gave him some money in his pocket because you know he weren't getting no money the only way he was actually getting any money was sparring Jimmy Ellis and obviously uh, uh, doing this little this little super fight uh, movie thing so yeah it kept him busy um, and obviously as as you know as we moved into sort of the last year I think it was like by about sort of what 1969 sort of when the, when they were probably doing the super fight that, that sort of you know, public sort of I, you know, what people felt about the Vietnam War, they felt that actually, the, you know, Ali's probably right here. So it was inevitable that sort of in that last year he was going to return. And obviously at that time it was it was Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier was picked up the title, I believe, for Jimmy Ellis. I think it was '69 or it may have been '70. Uh, might have been '1970 actually, but. Um, yeah, and Ellis had beaten Quarry to win his version. I think it was a WBA, and and the WBC was vacant, and then they put the WBC in the line to uh, unify. And obviously, Fraser was a unified champion. Um, obviously, everybody at the time was saying Mohammed Ali is the true champion, Joe Fraser isn't. So it was building lovely, bubbling nicely for when inevitably they were to share a ring a year later. Yeah, the fight of the century, that's the one. One of the greatest fights you'll ever see in boxing history yeah. and one that, if you've not already seen it, you should go and watch it. Unfortunately, it's not one that's come up in Legendary Nights yet. We have actually done the third fight, the Thriller in Manila, but we've not done the fight of the century as yet with Joe Fraser and Muhammad Ali. And it is one I'll look forward to, to sitting down and breaking down in full later on down the line. But this was the start of, of what was an epic rivalry, an epic trilogy of fights. And, you know, this... this this, is, this, for me, sort of defined that era and that legacy of, of, of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier because after this, you know, there was never not going to be a second and a third. I've said this before in the Legendary Nights episodes that this was always meant to be. It was always, well, as soon as these two guys met, there was just such disdain for each other. You know, it turned from friendship to, 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 to anger to all the different mixed emotions you could possibly go through with these two fighters and uh, it was great because obviously Ali was coming off the back of a few wins as well so bearing in mind he'd been out for three years he beat Jerry Quarry, he beat Oscar Bonavina and then he got his shot at Joe Frazier in early 1971. Now this was where you're thinking to yourself you know, Ali's going to come back, Ali's going to be go on and beat Joe Frazier, he's not the real champion, blah, blah, blah. But the fight itself, amazing fight, brilliant fight. We're not going to do a play-by-play of it, of course, but absolutely amazing fight. Joe Frazier ends up decking Muhammad Ali in this fight and goes on to win a 15-round unanimous decision to defend his titles. And, yeah, it was... A bit of a humbling, I think, for Muhammad Ali, this fight. Oh, definitely it was. It was. Um, I think he took it too early, personally, when you look at it. I mean, don't get me wrong, Jerry Quarry and Oscar Benavina were two, two tough fights to come back after a three-year exile. I mean, you know, I mean, we look at Tyson Fury now. I mean, he had a couple of warm-up fights and went into the wild fight. 
which he done well, but then he's had the two sort of low key fights after that. Um, you know, Ali wanted to get straight in. He, you know, he didn't want to waste any time. And Fraser was a was a dominant champion. And, and he, I tell you what, if anyone if anyone don't believe that Joe Frazier's got probably the best left hook in boxing, then uh, have a watch of this fight because the amount of times he lands his left hook on Ali is ridiculous. And also credit to Ali for taking those trademark left hooks. And it didn't take. He actually took it to the fifteenth round. He actually put him down on his arse. So. You know, this was this was a brilliant fight, the fight of the century. I mean, just just everything about. I mean, in the nineteen seventies at the time, so you had all the colours and you had all all the stars had come out, and you know, you had some massive names at ringside. It, it just looked, you know, it looked brilliant to look at when you actually watch it in colour, and you, you you can actually rather than just watch the fight, you can actually see like a bit of the build up and stuff. It, it's brilliant to watch. I, I think most of it is on YouTube, if I remember rightly. Even that one was on my DVD. I've got some stashed away, but excellent. It really was. And, and both fighters, you know, they earned 2.5 million, which is the most any fighter had ever earned by a mile. Um, so this, you know, it just shows you it was it was everywhere. It was the fight of the century for a reason. It, it just had everything about it. It was just amazing. Not just the fight, but just just the whole thing. You can get caught up in it just watching it back on on DVD. So yeah, I was really, you know. Frazier, I'm glad in a way he won it. I mean, this is probably the the biggest biggest victory of Frazier's career, and um, and it was a humbling for Ali, as you say. Yeah, definitely was a humbling for him. It's funny because then, obviously, after the uh, the, the loss of Frazier, 1971, he was actually going to end up fighting Wilt Chamberlain, who's huge, you know, mega basketball star over in America, great basketball player in, in basketball history over there. He actually challenged Ali to a fight and it was actually scheduled in for July the 26th of 1971. And obviously, basketball players, huge. This guy was 7 foot 2. He had absolute all the advantages over Ali. 60 pounds heavier, 14 inch wrench difference between the two of them and Ali with his mind games his mental mind games was actually able to influence Chamberlain to calling off the bow he was taunting him saying things like Timber and the tree will fall <laughs> during, a, during a shared interview with the, between the two of them uh, so eventually what they had to do is they had to then get in former par- sparring partner Jimmy Ellis to step in for that fight so he ends up fighting Jimmy Ellis and beating Jimmy Ellis on that date uh, instead of fighting Will Chamberlain <laughs> which I thought was quite a, a funny story, you know, reading back on, on that. And I can't imagine what that would have been like. Like That must have been like the equivalent of Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor. But, you know, Conor McGregor at least had some sort of martial arts and, and fighting experience, whereas Wilt Chamberlain was a basketball player. So I can't even imagine and begin to imagine what that sort of debacle was like back then. Imagine, imagine that in this day and age. I think people would be like, what the hell is this charade? Yeah, I seen. I did see the photo. I, I, I did hear what you said about it. It always makes me laugh. And the size difference. <laughs> I remember walking through the door and remember to bend down <laughs> to get through this door, which is hilarious. But yeah, he, he literally within ten minutes, he's like, "Yeah, I, I ain't, I ain't gonna fight this guy because he's just it's gonna ruin him before he even steps in the ring." Bless him. But yeah, oh, it's just that's just how he went over. Just these great little stories. And, I mean, the other thing as well, um, which I mentioned, is was following the, the uh, Fraser to see. Actually, that's when Deer Lake in, in Pennsylvania. That's when he relocated out there. Was in the log cabins and he had fresh water and fresh food. He was sort of went back to basics. Um, he actually had a couple of rocks as well. He had like a a black rock that he called Jack Johnson. Then he had like a white rock that he called Rocky Marciano. And then he had 
sort of brown rock, which he called Joe Lewis. So he's, and he's paint, he actually paints their names on them as well. And he was sort of, there's, there's videos and footage of him sort of in the log cabins and cutting trees down. And some great, that was, you know, if anyone watched Ali, would be sparring sort of from this point on. He's always at Deer Lake. And uh, they, yeah, they always, he gets all, the, all of his interviews and he's messing about in the ring. And uh, yeah, just that. Is, so he obviously felt that he needed to go back to, come away from all the sort of the city and the bright lights from what, what we see at the fight of the century to, to just going back to basics. And, and it helped him because obviously he, he, had, he went on a fantastic run compared to Joe Frazier. I mean, amount of fights he had, I think he had sort of, was it, there were like, was it one, two, three, four, five, six, almost like 10, 13 fights in, in within sort of like a year, two years, was it? Yeah, it was. It was quite a few fights before he ended up back in with uh, with Joe Fraser again. But on the way to, to fighting Joe Fraser again, he fought Floyd Patterson, as we spoke about earlier, in the second fight to help Joe uh, Floyd Patterson out. And then he beat Joe Bugner. Then he lost to Ken Norton, which I think was significant because, obviously, that was a, a big fight for him. He fought Ken Norton, lost to Ken Norton, and then beat him in the return fight and then moved on to fight Rudy Lubers, uh, which was actually in Jakarta. So this this is where he started to sort of go abroad, start fighting in obviously all these different countries, and you know that's where the, the sort of the global superstardom from um, from Ali was was starting to to really come to the forefront, and it was sort of paving the way for what was to come in a couple of years' time. So then we get the second fight with Joe Fraser, which he actually beats Joe Fraser in the second fight. And we, we, we've said before, the second fight is probably the... There's no worse, really. There's no worse of the three, but if you're going to label best to worst in terms of quality and, and excitement, I think the second fight between the two of them was down there as number three for me. I don't know the huge, significant part in his career when he faced off against George Foreman the Rumble in the Jungle yeah um, it, I mean he was an underdog in the list and fight and boy was an underdog against George Foreman who had absolutely destroyed Joe Frazier in what two rounds was it um, absolutely just battered him around the ring in, in Jamaica um, until this you know it, it, the Rumble in the Jungle um, nobody give him a chance I mean you watch the footage of George Foreman just smashing that heavy bag and almost putting a hole in it that you know you could see why I mean it, it was just unreal what, what this this guy when you talk about Liston was a monster Foreman was an absolute monster I mean I think someone mentioned about a, a, a great fight between Foreman and Tyson I mean what a fantasy fight that would have been I mean them two in the ring would have been ridiculous wouldn't it but Foreman was a beast he really was and, and I'm not surprised Ali went in the way he did, um, sort of the complete underdog. But once again, you know, that's what he does. He, he's just a great fighter. You know, as he said, Ali fights great. He's got speed and endurance. If you decide to fight him, increase your insurance. And uh, that is exactly, that is, that is just Ali, my favourite quote. Then um, I got $5 million each um, and 66,000 in attendance. You know, the whole crowd singing Ale Bumbaye, um, the famous Roper Doke. It was just amazing. Um, and Foreman, who would have thought it? That, that Who, in their right mind, would stand there and take a beating from George Foreman and t- try to tire him out to then finish him off in the eighth round? I mean, it's just, you just can't think of anything as ridiculous. But, but he pulls it off because that's Mohamed Ali and that's what he does. And, and it's just a great, great fight in Zaire and, and one that will always, you know, you'd always throw. And if you ever want to watch a fight, 
stick this one on because it's an absolute belter. It was a belter. Really, really enjoyed that particular fight. It's one that we've covered for Legendary Nights as well, so if you've not already listened to that particular episode for the Legendary Nights series, go and check that one out. We've covered the Rumble in the Jungle. That has been done before. (laughs) So if you want a more detailed breakdown of this fight, incidents leading up to the fight, go and check out that particular episode. But I agree, great performance, great win from him against all odds. And that's where people start to regard him again as the best in the world the greatest you know there's already talk of this at this point i think you know the way he'd come back from all the adverse things that had happened in his career inside and outside the ring to go on to do this was absolutely amazing when nobody gave him a chance in hell to beat him and then he just went on a nice little run again didn't he He beat chuck webner ron lyle joe bugner again before we get the third fight with fraser the most significant one the thriller in manila it's one we've covered quite recently at legendary night so please if you've not already checked Check the Legendary Night series out again. I must stress, go and check it out because we've got a full breakdown of this particular fight, the build-up and the aftermath of it. But this was uh, a brilliant fight and, you know, a brilliant win for him as well. It was a very grueling fight. And I think this fight for me was the one that sort of, I think the both of them left a piece of themselves in the ring that night. Absolutely. I, I can't even agree with you more, mate. It was just a, a brutal fight. And, and as you say, you know, we, we've covered it in the Legendary Night series because, you know, it, it, I'm not surprised eventually that was going to come up. It is one of the greatest fights I've ever seen and, and they both were outstanding that night and, you know, credit to the pair of them. But what what a great fight. An absolute brilliant fight. And, um, yeah, yeah, you know, Arnie went on and, and Frazier, obviously, you know, he was already after, after that fight from Frazier declined and obviously Arnie managed to carry on, which, which is sort of unbelievable, really, because after what you've already been through and, and that fight in particular, you're sort of thinking maybe it's time to call it a day, but no. Nope. Ali just wanted to keep going. He did, he did want to keep going and obviously he went on and he had more fights in his career. We had fights with Jimmy Young, we had fights with Ken Norton, Ernie Shavers, one of the hardest punchers in heavyweight boxing history and actually, you know, a lot of people do regard him as one of the top pound for pound punchers in boxing history as well. But interestingly enough, outside of the ring, his celebrity status was huge at this point. We were talking about the Wilt Johnson situation earlier on. He was actually, <laughs> in 1976, Twice in the space of a month, he was involved in different promotional things that were completely different from what he was used to. So, on June the 1st, 1976, Ali removed his shirt and jacket and confronted professional wrestler Gorilla Monsoon in the, in the ring after his match at a WWF show in the Philadelphia Arena. After dodging a few punches, Monsoon put Ali in an aeroplane spin, dumped him to the mat. Ali stumbled to the corner where his associate Butch Lewis convinced him to walk away. So, obviously, we know it was all a stage it was all uh, a celebrity thing Muhammad Ali is one of the biggest guys on the planet at this point in time so you know the WWF or WWE as it's known now wanted to get him on board to obviously boost up their ratings which was something they would go on to do a few times uh, with boxers so this was one thing that he did in the second thing that he did in June of that year he actually participated in an exhibition bout against Japanese professional wrestler and martial arts artist Antonio Inoki and this was a really really strange one because this definitely was the original Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather because this was a guy who knew martial arts against a boxer in Muhammad Ali Muhammad Ali actually only landed 
two jabs well Inoki's kicks actually caused two blood clots and an infection which nearly resulted in Muhammad Ali losing his leg which is something I never knew about before doing the research for this particular episode of the podcast I was like I knew that he'd had this sort of exhibition bout with uh, with a professional wrestler but I didn't realise it, it ended up being that serious no I didn't I, you know when I've watched that, I thought it was absolutely pathetic I thought what the hell was this so uh, I found the uh, Trevor Burbick uh, experience in Japan a lot more fun when uh, he, he he didn't want to get kicked and the guy just kept kicking him. <laughs> he ended up walking out of the ring. I thought that was much more fun than, than this sort of guy just sort of laying around on the floor sort of kicking at Ali. But obviously, you know, <laughs> I, did, I didn't know that. That's 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 uh, I, I didn't know that at all. So that's a turn up for the books. But um, yeah, oh okay. Oh, well, I mean, that, again, probably that shows what he's going for. I mean, he, he all the moving, you know, all the moving about he did and using his legs and he had that great footwork. It was obviously started to take its toll then obviously with all these fights and, and eventually just something so silly like that a guy kicking you in the legs and a step that you could actually amputate I mean that, that's, that's madness that's unbelievable but yeah I mean it, it just adds to, to the Ali story it really does add to the story and as we get into 1977 as I talked about him fighting Ernie Shavers he managed to beat Ernie Shavers very very tough fight for him though and I think at this point of his career, when you watch through the majority of his fights and you start to watch the fights at the latter end, is where it starts to become a little bit concerning because he's not the same Ali 10 years before. Obviously, age picks up with everybody, but you know the movement wasn't as good as it once was or wasn't as fast as he once was. He was catching more shots than he did before and against a guy like Ernie Shavers, you know, that was a very grueling fight for him to be involved in. And then a year later, or well, just a few months later in 1970, he fought seven fight novice Leon Spinks and lost to Leon Spinks which was considered one of the greatest upsets in boxing history at that moment in time yeah that that was a shocking one um, I think uh, if I remember rightly I think it was looking like he was going to fight home then I believe that's what it was or even the Shavers rematch um, but um, neither materialised and then um, or actually it might have been Norton for the third one if I remember rightly but in the end he went for Spinks um, and obviously I think it was a bit of a it was one of them ones where I think they felt you know he's a novice all right, he's, he, you know, he's coming out, he's got, I think, got a gold medal, didn't he? So he was like, uh, would it be an easy defence? And then when you look, actually watch the fight, I mean, he looked really old and tired. Um, saying that, it was still actually quite close. But when you actually see Leon Spinks unloaded on him, you're sort of thinking, oh, this is just, you know, this ain't the Ali that we've seen. Um, and he's obviously, he's, he's slowly starting to deteriorate at this point. But, you know, credit to Ali again. Um, he ends up coming back. Um, same year, September 15, 1978, and decides going to take on Spinks again. And this time he does win the fight and he wins by unanimous decision. Um, and it's hard to believe that Ali could actually beat Spinks after watching that, third, that first fight. And you're sort of thinking, goodness me, like, how has he managed to do that in the, in, in the condition he was in? Um, and he also became the only man in history to win world heavyweight title three times. So, you know, he made history. And surely that was it now. Surely this is the point. I mean, for me, I still feel after the Frazier, the third Frazier fight, he should have called it a day. Um, I think even when he sort of just asked the, the uh, Frazier fight, like Jimmy Ellis, that was a poor fight for him. And um, I don't know, it just didn't... Uh, or the Jimmy Young fight, so it was a couple of fights later. The, the Jimmy Young fight, it, it looked just... It, it didn't look right for me. Um, so I think it should have just been the Frazier fight, that should have been it. But, you know, all right, or even the Ken Norton fight, 
I'm jumping ears, but you know, Ken Norton maybe winning it, you know, the third fight. But you could see there was something not quite right, even though he beat Spinks, and then obviously you move on to the Holmes and Burbick fights, which were just tragic. Yeah, they were really, really tragic. After he beat Spinks, and as you say, it made him the first heavyweight champion to win the belt three times. On July 27th, 1979, he actually announced his retirement from boxing. And it's at that point where, obviously, if you must have been a fan back then, you must have been cheering, thinking, yes, we need him to, you know, we need him to retire now. We don't want to see him get hurt. We don't want to see him get, you know, uh, convincingly beaten. But, unfortunately, the, the, you know, the temptation of coming back to the ring, like any boxer in any day and age, is, is so tempting, especially when a guy like Ali, who was so charismatic, so, you know, what, what you know, the greatest, isn't he? This is it, though. Let's be honest, we th- we consider him to be the greatest for various reasons, and he just couldn't stay away from the ring, and that was the hard part of, about this 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 end of his career. Really, was that he went in there to, to to face Larry Holmes for the WBC title, so he wanted to go for the world title for an unprecedented fourth time. So. Ali's motivation for this was money. It was as simple as that. He was motivated to get money out of this fight. And boxing writer Richie Gianetti said, Larry didn't want to fight Ali. He knew Ali had nothing left and he knew it would be a horror. And it was. It was horrible. And I remember the interview. It was either the interview before the Holmes fight or the interview before the Burbank fight where he sat in what looks like a throne with a pair of shades on and he's talking and he's 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 storing a little bit with his words and he's he's not speaking clearly and he's he's like punch drunk. That's what he was like in this interview, and it's dead sad to watch. And you know, the amount of times you go back and look at the different documentaries that include this interview, or even on YouTube, it's so sad to watch. It's like you know somebody's suffering at this point. You know somebody's clearly, you know, struggling. Why let them go into the ring again? I don't understand why the people around him did let him go on to fight again. Something that we'll we'll never truly understand ourselves. But it's so difficult to watch because Larry Holmes, obviously, you know, actually did a number on him you know it was so sad like to, to watch that particular fight and really really upsetting as as, as a guy you know who, who's been an Ali fan all the way since he was born and Ali obviously had way finished his career when I was born so you know watching his career and watching him as a fight fan it was really really sad to watch the demise of him really as a fighter you know really really struggling against you know Larry Holmes and, and, and yeah it was just horrible to watch again it's just one of them things where you think to yourself you know just, just quit now just call it a day just call it Day. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if, if I remember rightly, Angelo Dundee was um, saying he was trying to tell him to not do the fight, and then Ali was adamant he wanted to do it. And Angelo Dundee sort of felt that you know what, even if even if um, I'm not in his corner, I say, look, I'm going to walk away. He, someone's going to give him the fight. You know, you know what these people are like. You know, you still get them today. You know, you get these, these absolute pigs that just want to earn some money. And if you can stick Ali against anybody, even the, the situation, you know, in the condition he was in. People will pay to watch it, and and uh, and that's what it is. Money talks. So I think Andrew Dundee said, "Look, I'd rather be with him than than not be there at all." Um, because if anything does go wrong, I, f- I feel like I can I can step in and, and do something. So, but yeah, I mean, Larry Holmes, he was sparring a sparring partner when he was like eighteen years old. I think it was just I think it was around the Norton fight, the very first Norton fight that he came in, um, and. Um, uh, it was either that or it might have been the Fraser fight. I can't quite remember, but uh, he came in as a sparring partner, a young lad, and um, so it, it was a massive, massive deal for him. And, and if anyone recalls it, he was, you know, he was really upset after the fight, wasn't he? Because he, he just, he just couldn't believe he just kept sort of hitting him, and it's, it's just nothing coming back. And it, 
it, it saddened him to, to, to just see Ali in, in the condition he was in and, and to go on and fight Burbick. I mean, Trevor Burbick, that's his claim to fame for me. I mean, Burbick will always be remembered to be a guy that, that beat Muhammad Ali, but that Ali, was that was even worse. And, and the home fight and I think at that point it was become very distasteful and even no matter how much money you throw at another Ali fight I don't think anyone would have actually watched it I think people would have probably protested against him ever stepping in the ring again and um, I'm sure all the major boxing organisations I, I, I can't think anyone would have wanted to grant us another fight after that Burbick fight because that was that was awful and I in actual fact, I think I've watched about two rounds of that Burbick fight and I've turned it off. I don't think I've ever watched the whole fight. I can't come to terms with actually seeing Ali that way. Um, and, and as you say, I, that, that famous interview with him sitting under the glasses and it, you can see it's just, you know, it's, it's not right. You know, he's not right at all. And, um, and thankfully, that was it. I'm, and I'm pleased that that was it in the end. Um, and he managed to just he managed to live live, live on and do still do some fantastic things. He did, he did. But the the, the issue was obviously the Parkinson's. The, the, you know, there's a lot of people uh, and experts that say that it was at the point when he fought Larry Holmes that it really developed the onset of Parkinson's syndrome. And so essentially, he was going in fighting Trevor Burbeck with Parkinson's disease, basically. Which you know, it's it's an horrible disease for anybody to have. It's a motor neuron disease. So it basically affects your your whole body your ability your mobility your ability to speak and obviously as we've seen later on down the line with Ali you know how bad he was shaking and you know he could hardly speak and, and, and he was just such a brave man to, to, to suffer with it from all them years to be honest with you uh, as he did by the end of his boxing career it was estimated that Ali had absorbed over 200,000 punches in his career now that's a hell of a lot of punches to have absorbed wow wow that's unbelievable. Oh, my goodness, mate. That shows, I mean, it, it, it just shows you how brutal boxing is. Um, that's that's impressive. I, you saying that, I actually, I actually did a bit of maths, um, and I had uh, Ali Dan. No, my maths ain't brilliant, so uh, bear with me. But um, So I might be slightly out, but Ali fought 548 rounds in 61 fights, which was exactly 1,600. 561 minute, um, which was just over 26 hours in the ring, <laughs> which wow, is just crazy. Hours. So you saying that it's all in punches, and that's that's. I mean, there are there are obviously guys in longer careers, but. You know, for Ferrari as a heavyweight to have accumulated that amount of fights and all them big fights is just saying something. It was just uh, incredible. It really was. I think we're going to talk about the stuff that happened outside of his career now. I think what we need to do is, yeah. is focus on some of the stuff that happened outside of his career because we've talked a lot about what happened inside the ring. It's what happened outside the ring that I think transcended him as a man and why probably people still consider him to be the greatest over guys like Sugar Ray Robinson. You know, in terms of... An overall package not just a fighter in the ring if you're judging someone inside and outside the ring Ali tops them all because of the man he was and there's just stories of, of some of the things that he you know that he had to do and I think there's one story that, that sticks out in my mind and there's quite a few of them in 1984 Ali announced his support for the re-election of United States President Ronald Reagan uh, when asked to elaborate on his endorsement of Reagan Ali told the reporters he's keeping God in schools and that's enough in 1984 he visited Israel to request the release of Muslim prisoners at a detainee camp which Israel initially declined and then I think it was the 1991 
that was really significant for me. In 1990, he travelled to Iraq. This was prior to the Gulf War, by the way, and he actually met with Saddam Hussein in an attempt to negotiate the release of American hostages. Ali actually secured the release of all the hostages in exchange for promising Hussein that he would bring America an honest account of Iraq. And that alone, for me, is, is part of why people love him. The fact that he was able to go over there to Saddam Hussein, who's obviously known as the dictator and the guy that was known as an evil person in a majority of the people's minds and had this sort of stronghold over the country and the way he ran the country all the way up until his death. This was a guy who was just a boxer. This was a guy who just, who's been in the ring and the reputation outside of the ring had preceded him. He was able to go over to a hostile country like that, be welcomed with open arms and then actually negotiate the release of hostages. Wow, you know that that's a story in its own. That's just something that that made him the man he was. Oh, that's that's. I mean, that's just incredible, isn't it? I mean, the way he was able to use his, you know, that that his sporting, he's a sporting icon, and the way he was able to use that uh, for the good because he, he that's what he was. You know, I believe that was the sort of person he was. He 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 came from, uh, you know, it was it was a, it was a basic upbringing um, it wasn't a terrible upbringing of any sorts but it was a comfortable but um upbringing but you know he he always made sure that when he did get to the point where he you know where he was at he was able to help people and he always did he was always always you know, you know the footage you ever see you know he, he was always known to do magic magic tricks with the, with the kids didn't he when they'd go and watch him it, it, sort of sparring um you know he, obviously the torch in uh at the Olympics as well was a big thing. He also done the Winter Olympics as well in 2002. He he lit the torch there and and yeah, I mean as you say, I mean that's that's incredible. I I've I never heard that story. So uh, that that's, that just makes yeah, again you know you do the one thing with Arnie is you do find out other little bits you know bits and pieces that you didn't know and you know that that's enlightening to, to hear that and just shows you again just. As you, as you rightly said there, Sean, that this guy is the greatest because of what he's done in and outside the ring. Um, and, and that's what makes him so great and, and just such a great person to, to watch and to, to just discuss and talk about. Well, I mean, what an amazing fighter. What an amazing guy. The 1996 Olympics as well, when he actually came in and lit the, uh, well, took the, the, the lit torch and basically opened the Olympic Games was, was a huge thing as well because obviously it was watched mm. by, I think it was something ridiculous, like 3.5 billion people across the world. Uh, Muhammad Ali, obviously full of full of his Parkinson's at the time, struggling to get it there, but managed to get it there. It was quite an iconic moment, which, you know, is seen in quite a few of the documentaries that have been made about him. And, you know, even, even well after that, he was still involved in all sorts of different projects. And it was uh, it was, it was quite quite amazing to see how, you know, he was able to, to, to still be involved in so much uh, as as much as he possibly could be all the way up until the end really and i think that's uh, i think that's what a lot of people had uh, total respect for him for was not just everything he did inside the ring it's everything he did outside the ring as well and i think for me that's that's what kind of made him uh, like, uh, like people say the greatest because of everything he was able to do inside and outside of the ring and all the different stories and all the humanitarian work that he did outside of the ring was was amazing and you know when he when he actually passed away in 2016 there was 
people lining the streets up and down the coverage over on the tv networks worldwide was was absolutely re, you know ridiculous literally every channel was was just ali everything was about ali there was not a channel that didn't have it on here in the uk and obviously in the usa they have a lot more channels so you know it was on every channel and they had pallbearers including will smith lennox lewis mike tyson with honorary pallbearers uh Chavalo, larry holmes and george foreman you know all the former opponents of him and that was just basically the respect that he commanded as a man throughout all of the years and you know it was quite quite a sad moment for for boxing and he was iconic weren't he yeah yeah really well i mean you even say that the other the relationship he built with Henry Cooper and obviously when uh when he went into Hall did he go out I don't know if it was the Hall of Fame. I don't know if he was it was being inducted or if he had already been inducted and there was something else going on. But I, now I do remember watching the news and seeing Henry Cooper and Married Ali in the back of the uh convertible and, and he just he had he had a great respect for for, for, for England as well when, when he came to for Britain in general when he came over during the uh, the exile um, just before it um, especially when with the Henry Cooper and yes there was a guy um, I, I do I, I can't think what it was what documentary was I did see something but um, there was a guy over in I'm not sure where he lived or what part of England it was but he just he, he felt like, I think he just went in for a cup of tea with his geezer, just some random fan. And um, and he was really humbled by how we treated him um, compared to how he was being treated in America. So he always had a love for England, or I keep saying England, but for Britain in general. And uh, and this guy that, that he had met and that he had had a cup of tea with, he actually came back again a few years later and went straight, knocked on his door and went for another cup of tea. And then there's famous pictures of, his, of him in there and he's uh, sort of taking some shots and sitting down having a cup of tea and just taking some shots of him rolling his wrists up. And, and again, I mean, that's just, that is just brilliant, isn't it? I mean, that, that, that guy must, you know, he must, he must, that's just amazing for him. Um, he didn't have social media like he did back then, like, like he do now today, sorry. So, yeah, another little story there where he just, he just struck up friendships with random people. It doesn't matter where you are, what background you, whatever, wherever you come from, it, it didn't matter to him. And that, that, that was, that, that's just Ali all over. And, you know, that's, that's just great. And, and it's just, again, I mean, it's just, he's just an amazing person and, and, and a great fighter and just one that you won't ever see again. You know, you get these people in a lot Sports, whether it be you know, like a new Saint Bolt in athletics, or uh, yeah, I can't think of anyone else to admit in a minute. But um, these guys are just—they be they're like epic proportions. They're like you know, they're beyond the sport. They and they transcend themselves beyond the sport with the stuff they do outside the ring as well. So yeah, it's just it's brilliant um, and, and a great, great, great one to start with for, for the career profiles. It is a great one to start with for the career profiles. I've really, really enjoyed going through it. And I know we you know we've had to skim over a lot of detail really because there is hell of a lot of other information that we could sit here and talk about with Ali. And like I said to you off air, we could be here for three, four hours at a time recording a podcast and, and I don't think people are gonna to want to sit here for three and four hours and listening listen to us as much <laughs> as they might love listening to our podcast. They might not want to listen to us for four hours talk about the ins and outs of Muhammad Ali. Especially Especially, obviously, when he's he's widely available with all the different documentaries. We just wanted to give our interpretation of Ali, about his career, about what we think of him, about what he did inside and outside of the ring, and and give our career profile of Muhammad Ali. And I think we've we've done we've done a really really good job, I think. And I think I've really enjoyed it, and I've really enjoyed speaking about Muhammad Ali because, as you can probably tell by both listening to myself and Johnston, you know, we're really passionate about the sport, we really love the sport, and this is a guy that's trans ended it and you know you can never go anywhere without asking someone who Muhammad Ali is and they not know who he is that is just telling yeah, you exactly. how that just tells you how much the man transcended the sport for me you go somewhere and you say oh do you know Muhammad Ali yeah that, that's it if you're able to do that yeah and 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 
you know, get that response from somebody, then that just goes to show you that, you know, the legacy the man's left behind, especially even for the younger kids of today who's, you know, we was born past his era and there's kids that are now, you know, growing up in the teens looking at Muhammad Ali as this absolute idol and watching his fights on YouTube and, you know, that that is it. And that is that is the legacy he's left behind. And that legacy I don't think will ever die. And that is that's the beauty of, of what he did and what, you know, he did for this sport and what he did for not just the sport but for the whole movement of, of, of black people, the whole movement of civil rights, everything, you know, everything he you know, Patukin was for me was was always a meaning behind it. There was always a reason behind it, and it's one of them. Like I said at the start of the episode, really, if you could have sat down with somebody, you know, on a table for half an hour, I think nine times out of ten, most people would have picked someone like Muhammad Ali, especially a boxing fan. If you're a boxing fan, if you would have wanted to have sit down with a fighter past present, Muhammad Ali's the one. There's nobody else. That that that's, that's what it means to me. That's how I see it, and that's how I see most people. People's interpretation of it. We put posts out. Who's the greatest fighter of all time, or who should be on the the mountain Rushmore of boxers? Muhammad Ali, always up there. Always, always. He, he was just, you know, as you say, people that don't even know boxing, they know about Muhammad Ali because of what he done outside the ring as well as inside it. Um, and you know, his political views at, at times people didn't agree with, um, and he stuck by him. He stood by him, um, and and he didn't. It actually made him more of a. a, a, a a man, if you like, just just the way he carried himself in his interviews during his exile, um, and it was rubbing people out the wrong way at times. But he didn't care, and he kept going with it. He was getting, as, as as we mentioned, you know, when he just changed his name. I mean, the guy's just changing his name, and people were threatening to kill him. Those were the era. That was that was a really terrible, tough era to be around, especially for a, a, a black guy sort of in 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 the spotlight. Um, and as you know. Like, not going to sort of disrespect Floyd Patterson, but Floyd Patterson was was that guy that they they expected everybody to be like, you know, and and he didn't fit that mould. He he wasn't going to do that, and and that was that that's 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 great, and that's you know that's what he's able. You could you, young kids can look at Ahmed Ali today, and you know, there's nothing wrong with going against the grain. Sometimes if you don't agree with something and you really believe strongly enough that actually no, I'm right, there's nothing wrong with sticking by it. Just because everybody else is against you, just stand by it. You know, eventually people will follow and people will understand and people will agree with you at times. Sometimes you might not even be right at the end of it. But to have that ability about you and to, to stand there and say, Do you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick by what I agree and, and, and this is what it's gonna this is you know, what whatever happens happens. This is what I believe and that's what he did and I think that is a massive part of it. And then from that point people loved him and adored him even more and then you know, what he'd done in the ring was was amazing and then obviously beyond that and what he's done and what you've mentioned there we're going to see Saddam and getting American prisoners released I mean that's just that's crazy isn't it I mean that's that's just unbelievable so yeah if, if any young kids who you know just seen the thriller of Melilla and the, the rumble in the jungle go and watch some more of his fights go and watch his interviews and you could spend a whole day watching Mamed Ali. I've done it before. I've done it several times because he's just that type of guy and you could listen to him all day long and I could quite quite easily, to be fair, because he was just amazing. Amazing person and a great fighter. Certainly was and it's been an absolute pleasure covering this episode and the first of the series in career profiles. If you've enjoyed it, please let us know. If you feel there's any amendments we can do to make it better, please let us know. If you didn't like it, also let us know we want to make things better for you guys the listeners we want to give you great content to listen to while you're sat there typing away on your keyboards at work or you've got that long drive to somewhere where you need to go 
or that long bus ride, whatever it is, we want to be there to provide you all this quality boxing content. So any feedback is really, really appreciated. It allows us then to work on new ideas, new things like this. So career profiles, if you enjoyed it, let us know. We're going to be putting polls out every week for the career profile series. We're going to be picking some of the greatest fighters of all time and we're going to be doing what we've done tonight, which is career profile. And let's talk about the fights that it was in, significant fights, significant actions inside and outside of the ring, whether they were good actions, whether they were bad actions, we're going to cover it all. Johnston, it's been a pleasure, really enjoyed it. Same here, mate, it really has been a pleasure and uh, look forward to the poll and see who we get next. Yeah, definitely. So guys, please, as always, go and follow us on social media at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook as well. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think about the podcast in general. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, go on any of the good podcasting apps out there and rate us on there. Subscribe to us. We really, really appreciate all the support and the love that we get from all you listeners out there. And this was it. This was the career profile of the greatest Muhammad Ali. He would come to the gym and if he didn't get a ride to the gym, he didn't have no car. He would run. He would run across the causeway. Muhammad Ali, one of my great heroes, had a great line in the 70s when he was asked, how many sit-ups do you do? He said, I don't count my sit-ups. I only start counting when it starts hurting. When I feel pain, that's when I start counting because that's when it really counts. That's what makes you a champion. Jerry, I'm the greatest fighter that ever stepped foot in the ring. Money will be lost that night. This will be the biggest upset in the century of all boxing. I think you're a big bag of wind. Damnedest showman that ever lived, and you ain't kidding anybody. The odds are seven to one. It's very big odds for a heavyweight championship fight. It has to be Liston. Liston is a much bigger puncher. While well, these big mouth people talking about I talk too much, well, I want all of them to be there, and I'm going to shut up all of his mouth. And Cassius Clay has won after six rounds. My name no more. You want to keep calling me a white man's name? I'm not white. Continues to scream at Terrell. He beat the hell out of those who didn't want to use his name. Mr. Muhammad Ali has just refused to be inducted into the United States Armed Forces. I'm just about broke. I'm not allowed to work here now in America. I'm going to fight not for me, but to uplift my little brothers who are sleeping in the concrete floors today in America. They want to be famous. Damn people. It's a wonderful book. I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his eyes can't see. All of you chumps are going to bow when I whip him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in cover. I'm going to show you how great I am. Bluffed him. I'd done everything. Beat him up basically for about five or six rounds. I thought it was easy. Then about the sixth round, he whispered in my ear after I'd hit him in the side. That all you got, George? Talk about who's gonna stop me. Well, ain't nobody gonna stop me. I must be the greatest. I took up the world. I took up the world. I told you, all of my critics, that I was the greatest of all time. He was not courageous enough to take risks and accomplish nothing in life.
a kid, you always bet certain fellas, I'm going to be champion one day, and when I'm champion, I'm going to come back and show you I'm wrong. Another said, guys, I'm going to be a great doctor one day, and I'm going to be a dentist, I'm going to be a great scientist, I'm going to be a president of the country. And But very few people actually are able to make good of the boats and come home and say, I told you. Podcast Network. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.